Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy. And I'm Steve Sademan. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. So Steph, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Steve. I see you have been really busy once again. You've been hosting the defense minister in your class and publishing an op-ed in the Globe and Mail. How are you feeling? Wiped out. Man, it's been a busy time and I still got a pile of grading ahead of me. So the good news, well, we got lots of good news, but the big news was that CDSN is receiving a Minds Collaborative Network grant. That news uh, came out last week. That will fund research into four areas related to global emergencies and Canadian resilience. And that means global health. Uh, we're going to focus a little bit on climate change or climate security via the new Canadian Center of Excellence that Canada is trying to build, supply chain vulnerability, and uh, domestic emergency operations. So that's going to be the new thing that we're going to do. So we're going to have double the number of themes and it'll help provide uh, some funding for some of our activities. So we're really excited about that. So that was big news. And then later in the week, we had the defense minister on our podcast promised to come to our class, my class. And this past Thursday was the last chance for her to do it. And she reached out, we arranged it, and she uh, showed up virtually for the first half hour of my civil military relations class Thursday morning. And that was really interesting because students had lots of contemporary policy questions. I I kind of wish they'd asked actually questions driven by the class itself, which was about civil military relations. We had the main civilian in that relation, in that dynamic in the room. But I asked a civil military question of a kind, which is about a defense review, because that came up in the, around the budget, which we'll talk about in a couple minutes. And so I asked her a bit about that. So we did that. And then I was quickly off to Toronto, to Waterloo, actually, for the CDSN book workshop. Shannon Nash, who is the project coordinator for the NASDAQ Minds Network, has a book on terrorism. And so we arranged to have a couple of outside experts and a couple of people from, from the local academic community and me hang out and go through her book and give her suggestions. And there was a second one. Your colleague, Stephanie Martell, was able to, to do this last year entirely virtually. Uh, and mm-hmm. she turned that into a Stanford University Press book that's yeah. coming out soon. So we're hoping that Shannon is as successful. So we did that. And now I'm just gearing up for the capstone on Wednesday. So the day this drops, there will be an event at Carlton, but it'll also be online. And we're going to save it online so people can stream it later where we bring together the best presentations from across all of our partners in the CDSN from the past year. Uh, You nominated somebody and other partners nominated people. And so they'll present at Carleton. So, and we're gonna bring together some of our our undergraduate excellence scholars who we have not met in person before to that event. And uh, that's great because we're working on helping them 
deliver their big projects because they both got Young Minds money, which is a grant from D&D to undergraduates. And so they both have events in May that we're helping them work out. So you can see that there's a lot of things going on here and also did a lot of media stuff talking about, if not Ukraine, Russia, then about the defense budget because everybody wants to know why we're not at 2%, Steph. Why aren't we at 2%? Are you happy? <laughs> I guess the big question really is, is, is $8 billion over five years the, the bounce you were looking for and what should we be spending this money on? And should we spend and find more money for it? Right. Uh, well, first of all, really nice treat to your students that you got to bring the defense minister over to class. That's amazing. So well done on that. And I know we'll get a bit uh, more into detail about the types of questions your student asks. But on the 2% specifically, if you want to start there, yes, expectations were raised in Canada. I think that was quite palpable and, and you could definitely feel the momentum building on that question. And I agree with the sentiment that Dave Perry shared uh, over the past few days, meaning that when you raise expectations in this way, especially invoking NATO and NORAD commitments, the announcement of an additional $8 billion over five years appears to fall short. But if we think back to where we were when Trudeau first got elected, you know, the very first time back in 2015, we were expecting defense cuts more than defense increases. And I think the annexation of Crimea changed the calculus. And of course, Trump changed the parameters of the initial defense policy review further. But it's important to put this in the broader context. We're so focused on February 24th that we forget that over the past seven years, we, we have moved the needle quite a bit in this country when it comes to expectations on, on defense spending. And there has been this, this upward trajectory. And then we also need to talk about NATO expectations, because certainly I think in Canada, expectations were raised. And Dave Perry's point was that Minister Anand's statements of late had indicated that maybe the increase would be more substantial. And then there were all the comparisons made with Germany's change of heart with regards to defense spending. Uh, but let's talk about NATO expectations more broadly because front and center in this conversation is this famous 2% pledge. And we can definitely acknowledge that recent alliance pressure since February 24th has resulted in Canada doing more to increase defense spending, and, and it has. But I wonder if this increase is enough to impress allies. This figure is enough. And here we're, we're not privy to the backdoor diplomatic conversations that occur in Brussels, you know, sometimes the side party, Steve, but certainly not the tighter uh, <laughs> conversations. But I think it's useful to go back to what the 2% pledge actually entailed, because it's very rare that additional detail is given around the context. And it was initially committed to in 2006, but derailed shortly after because of the global financial crisis. Then it was reiterated in 2014 at the Whale Summit in response to Russia's annexation of Crimea, but this time with a specific timeline of 10 years. So that would take us to 2024. And if we go back to the official NATO language on this commitment, and we know how important language is in this context, we note that first, allies whose current proportion of GDP spent on defense was below 2% would halt any decline. So that's first. Canada seems to have done that. Then those countries would aim to increase defense expenditure in real terms as GDP grows and aim to move towards the 2% guideline by 2024. And this is not just an abstract figure. This increase is meant to support individual allies in meeting their NATO capability targets 
and filling NATO's capability shortfalls. So I, I say this because you know, the 2% benchmark is often mentioned in these conversations and it's criticized for being arbitrary, but the defense investment pledge is of course, you know, highly symbolic, but it is tied to the NATO defense planning process, which is kind of meant to identify the most effective way for NATO allies to invest in, in the capabilities that the allies need. And then, you know, there were several steps to allies meeting that commitment and it was incremental. So yes, you know, Canada is still falling way short of that and is unlikely by 2024 to, to reach that 2%. It'll be closer to 1.5%. But also, you know, Canada has made some moves to meet allied expectations in the context in which these agreements were made back in, in 2014. Okay, that's all I wanted to say, but I think it's important to just spend a bit more time on explaining what the 2% means and providing a bit more context. I think you, you addressed it quite well. The thing is, it's about the commitment in 2014 was not to get to 2% in 2024, but to move in that direction, to aspire to get there. I think it was Stephen Harper's move to try to get the word aspiration or aspire into it, as opposed to a firm commitment of getting there by 2024. And really what matters is, are we buying stuff that makes us more capable? Are we investing in, in the force in ways that get to be more capable? And so a key benchmark of this is not 2%, but 20%. Are we spending 20% of the defense budget on new stuff? Because again, I'll go back to the usual example, which is Greece go, exceeds 2% because it spends a lot of money on personnel. And that's partly a welfare program. It's partly a way to spend money on, on, on people. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're more capable. And then those people are mostly aiming their guns at Turkey, which happens to be a NATO member. And so Greece makes the 2%, but it doesn't make the 20%, and it doesn't really help the alliance out very much. I think the decision to buy the F-35, which will put spending upward spending pressure on our budget, because it's going to be, we're actually going to spend the money, is really important for sending signals to NATO that we're serious about doing stuff. The, the liberal F-35 buy is actually bigger than what the conservatives imagined by 23 planes. I think it's meaningful when we are actually making progress and doing the things that actually make us more capable. I think the big question right now is not so much 2%, but what are we spending our money on? And people are drawing all kinds of lessons from the Ukraine-Russia war. Like, well, we need to buy more anti-tank and anti-aircraft capabilities. Apparently, we've been under-resourcing on anti-aircraft capabilities for years. Clearly, we need to find a way not only to have more drones in the air ourselves, but have a capability for shooting down the drones of the other side. That both sides have used drones extensively in this war. The Ukrainians have used them quite effectively. And so in the future, we're going to have to be able to shoot down Russian drones or Chinese drones or ISIS drones or whoever has drones. And so that's a capability we have to develop. So I, th I think the big question is really what to spend the money on. I do think that you're right. They set expectations a little high. When I first heard the $8 billion, I thought it would be $8 billion a year, not $8 billion yeah. stretched over five years, which then mm -hmm. isn't really that much at all. So I, I think you're right. They set themselves up for a bit of failure by creating expectations that they couldn't meet. Speaking of expectations, one of the things that was different, as I highlighted before, is that we are now going to have a defense review. At the Ottawa Conference of Defense and Security, when Anand was asked about this, she really suggested that, at least as I interpreted it, that she wasn't really favoring a defense review because she wanted to make decisions about waiting for some cumbersome process to take place. When she came to my class, and I, uh, this is the day after the news broke about the defense review, I, I asked her about this and what I got wrong about it. And she said 
she's all in favor of a defense review that defense reviews are good for making defense policy. They set the backbone, I think is the word she used, for making defense policy that the strong, secure, engaged document of 2017 has been a crucial anchor for contemporary Canadian defense policy, but that there are some decisions that have to be made and will be made before defense review takes place, that she doesn't want to wait for this to play out to make some of the decisions that have to be made, whether that's sending arms to Ukraine or making the F-35 decision. There are some things that are in motion that just can't wait for a defense review. So if I had to guess, I would think that this next defense review will take place more quickly than the last one. The last one took a long time from start to finish. I don't think that, that this one's going to take as long. I mean, maybe they can say, well, it's going to be SSE plus, that they're going to use that as a baseline and use that process to move things more expeditiously. But from what we were chatting about before we went online, it's just that you have a way of, of, of making it much shorter still by doing all the heavy lifting for defense. So Tell us what you are going to be doing to, to, to review defense for D&D. <laughs> it's funny because, Steve, I know we, we had this conversation. We were trying to speculate on whether or not there would either be a new foreign policy review or a new defense policy review. And I think our conclusion had been that no, there wouldn't be anything. So with last week, the announcement that there would be this kind of SSC refresh or this new defense policy review was welcome news for, for us experts who gravitate in the security and, and defense world. But what uh, we had set out to do with the Réseau d'Analyse Stratégique or Network for Strategic Analysis is to hold small consultations in the month of May. And these have already been scheduled from Montreal to, to Calgary because we wanted to prepare the ground for our annual colloquium in September. For us, it's our third year of the, the networks or, or third year out of three. And, and we really wanted to close off this first cycle with a bang. And so for the event, not only to be a conference and, and a networking opportunity for our students, but a way for us to propose some concrete recommendations, to propose a strategic orientation for Canada. Because as academics, we sometimes sit on the margins and complain and criticize the state of defense policy, but we're also very well positioned to make some concrete recommendations based on the research that we have ongoing. But we also felt that you need to prepare the ground for that. You can't just show up at a colloquium and have this discussion spontaneously. So that's why we did the, the design for these small consultations that we could then summarize in, in a, a document that we could circulate to partners. And this is where CDSN has a role, of course, because, you know, it'll be more meaningful if these recommendations can be more broadly endorsed and that we can use uh, the September annual colloquium as a way to share uh, those recommendations more broadly and then to debate and have a discussion about it with both academics and experts in, in the room. So your input will be incredibly valuable, of course. Not that you're shy about giving it now. <laughs> your Twitter, you're hard to keep up with, but this was indeed the plan. So now to find out that there's an actual formal process for a defense policy review. Well, that's even better because that gives us a, a direct channel through which to feed in those recommendations. So since we last talked, Stephanie, John Vance pled guilty to obstruction of justice and for his crime, got 80 hours of community service and was told that it would not be on his permanent record because of his years of honorable service. I was pretty outraged at this because it seemed to me that the court was saying that a guy violating his oath for 20 years and lying many, many times about it 
as well as committing all other, all other kinds of mistakes and misjudgments in his job as CBS, is allowed to be rewarded for that and, and continue to have essentially impunity. So I was I was pretty outraged by all that. And I channeled my outrage in a couple of different directions. And one of them was to write this op-ed piece, which was really in a way for me to try to explain something I didn't think I adequately covered when I was testifying in front of parliament a couple weeks ago, which is people are like, well, what do we do with the ombudsman in the, in the controversy about Vance, a key moment in time was when uh, a woman who advanced had a woman who was in uh, in his chain of command essentially. When he hit on her, she ultimately reported that to the ombudsman in 2018, and the ombudsman reported that to Minister of Defense Harjit Sajjan. And Sajjan said, "It's not my job to look into what the CS is doing." Essentially, and what that raised to me was there's a problem of oversight in Canada because really there's only one person who has sees their job as overseeing the military, and that is the, the Minister of National Defense. I think we were in much better hands with Minister Anita Anand than we were under Harjit Sajjan, but. In either case, we need other actors involved. And I couldn't really express this well when I was talking to the Defense Committee, but I think the Defense Committee is poorly set up for, for overseeing the military because when you ask them what their role is, they say, our job is not to oversee the military. Our job is to hold the Minister of Defense to account. Well, how are they to oversee the ombudsman if we decide to have the ombudsman report to Parliament? Because the ombudsman's job is not to evaluate the defense minister. The ombudsman's job is to look into investigations in the military. And they would reporting to Parliament would only make sense if Parliament saw its role overseeing the military. So I draw that out in an op-ed that came out on the, over the internet over the weekend, and then was actually in the print edition. It's always more exciting to see an op-ed in, yeah. in print. So I ran out and got that while I was also chasing down COVID tests. I don't know if you had a chance to read it. Uh, I did. I did first thing in the morning. And, and one thing that I was immediately struck by is that it seems to me that you're also drawing from your Shirk research project because you're making some comparisons with other countries, including Germany, and explaining the, the pros and cons of the different ways this civilian oversight mechanism could be set up to hold the, the King Armed Forces to account. Yes, well, it is very much driven by our research because when I started realizing how powerless and disinterested the Defense Committee is in Canada, I mentioned it to Paul Martin when I was interviewing him for my NATO book. And he said, don't compare us to the United States. Because I, I, I was shocked because as, as somebody who grew up in the United States, I, I, I knew what a fully powered legislature could do and get in the heads of the military. It compares to the UK and Australia. And I was like, that's a great research project, Paul. So I then enlisted our mutual friend, Phil Lagasse, and my friend from grad school, Dave Arswald. And so we're completing a book that compares 15 democracies across the world and what role their defense committees play in overseeing their militaries. And Canada is at the very, very far end of the spectrum. Uh, that is the very lame end of the spectrum. And it doesn't have much power or interest in doing this. But the UK and Australia are not quite so disinterested and they have a bit more influence. And so it's not a matter of changing Canada into the United States, but learning from our cousins with similar institutions about what parliamentary committees can do. And also learn from Germany, whose system is parliamentary, if not Westminster, and thinking about how they empowered what they call the parliamentary commissioner of the armed forces to be an agent of the parliament. And so I think there are lessons that we can learn from it. So yes, this is grant money gone right, where the research actually has policy implications. And I spent this you know, last week writing it up to, to convey that to the larger Canadian audience. Oh, very well done. I always like how you draw the broader civil military implications of individual decisions. I think that's important. And that's exactly the value-added academic commentary can provide in terms of uh, current events. Speaking of which, this week's feature interview is with 
Tim Topi Oriola, who's an associate professor of sociology at Alberta, we talked about extremism and policing in Canada. And that was very much informed by my work on civil military relations, because I was wondering, how does how do we control the, the police in our country if they don't seem to be all that interested in addressing right-wing extremism? And so we had a very good conversation. Uh, we had it not that long after the convoy crisis in Ottawa. So it was very much in light of that. And uh, so that's our feature interview. And I think that's what all we got for this week, Stephanie, before I go off and figure out what I'm mm-hmm. going to add for our R&R segment. <laughs> That sounds good. Well, I'll let you think about that. And in the meantime, it was really nice talking to you. And it's a great feature interview, great interview that you did, Steve. And I I look forward to us sharing it with the audience. Take care. You too. Today in Battle Rhythm, we're talking with Timotopa Oriola, who has got uh, some notice this past uh, month from writing a really good piece for the conversation about the convoy stuff in Ottawa and the response of the police to that and to other, other events. He's an associate professor of criminology at the University of Alberta, and he's here with us to talk a little bit about what's been going on and how to make sense of it. And I guess I'll start with the hardest question first, which is one of the things that struck me during the occupation was the insistence by authorities that they had no control over the police, that we've somehow created a structure where we don't want to have policing politicized, so we're just going to leave the police to do whatever the hell they want. Is, is that a fair description of the Canadian reality and any idea of how we got here? I think the reality is far more nuanced and textured than um, a lot of the elected leaders would have us believe mm-hmm. at the height of the convoy occupation. Now, it is true that they don't give day-to-day operational micro-mechanics or minutiae to law enforcement organizations, but they do set the tone. They do send very clear and unambiguous signals mm-hmm. in terms of what exactly they would like accomplished. And so the hands-off manner in which they approached the convoy mm-hmm. was partly a function of political calculus. Mm -hmm. which was fundamentally tied to the identities of the individuals uh, who were involved. This was um, a a group of individuals uh, that were incredibly politically connected and they represented a swath of society that they were interested in garnering votes from. And so my my perspective on that is is that it was more politics than law enforcement. And uh, leaders at the time, made calculated political choices in their response to the occupation, particularly in Ottawa and here in Alberta. And when you say calculated political choices, I guess what I read into that is that the notion that, or at least this is the way I, I was looking at things at the time, you can tell me if I'm wrong, is that the provincial leaders and the Ottawa leaders didn't want to offend the right side of the political spectrum. Not necessarily that every person who's a conservative or whatever is a white supremacist, but that there's enough of them out there that they don't want to lose that fraction of the party. So Doug Ford spent the entire time hiding out rather than do anything about it. Is, is, is that a fair depiction? I think that's a fair characterization. And I've, I've always cautioned that we make a, a massive blunder by presupposing that every extremely conservative individual is necessarily right-wing. They're not all right-wing extremists. However, because of the cause that these individuals were, were fighting for, mm-hmm. and there was a degree of trepidation with which leaders both in the conservative party and outside the conservative party were approaching 
that issue. The, the circumspection was what led to what I've called a superficial law enforcement paralysis. And because they understood that these individuals represented far more than the, those on the streets. And we only look, need to look at the funding that they were able to raise mm-hmm. within a matter of days. Before the GoFundMe account was, was frozen, the group had raised more money than the Alberta NDP and Conservative Party raised in 2021 combined. Mm-hmm. So, and what that tells me is that these were not just your average $10 or $20 uh, donors. And these mm-hmm. were individuals with a degree of deep pockets. And uh, this group represented a far more organic swath of society than extremists on the streets. And the, the guy with the um, the Trump 2024 banner or, or the person with, with the Nazi symbol, those were in part of the convoy, but they were just a tiny slice mm-hmm. uh, of a much broader broader level of, of support. And I think this was what gave elected leaders a level of pause. Mm-hmm. And because of the way elected leaders were approaching this issue, policing authorities were also paralyzed in, in their response. DS is a very delicate balance. They are appointed by individuals who are selected by elected leaders. And therefore, while they are not necessarily mired in politics, they are not above politics. And so you had calculations on all sides mm-hmm. and perhaps sincere conundrum and, mm-hmm. and befuddlement in terms of how to respond to what was going on. But I think overall, with respect to Ottawa, there was just a basic underestimation and miscalculation as regards uh, what this would mean. Those trucks should never have been allowed into downtown Ottawa in the first instance. The moment the trucks arrived in downtown Ottawa, they had won a significant victory. And Ottawa police and law enforcement in general had lost that symbolic battle. Mm -hmm. uh, And they had handed a degree of victory to the organizers of of the protest. Now, and I say that cognizant that the number of roads leading to downtown Ottawa is not infinite. Mm -hmm. So they could have blocked those individuals from driving into uh, downtown Ottawa or even Coots, Alberta. And by the way, the, the group never hid their intentions. We, we knew from their social media. No, no, no. They did say what they were up to, where they were going next, when they would arrive, and so on. So they were pretty transparent about exactly what they wanted to do. But I think for, for whatever reason, some of that being the internal dynamics and intricacies of the Ottawa Police Service, some of which we're now beginning to learn about, they made the decision to not prevent them from getting in with the misguided notion that they were going to exit downtown Ottawa the following Monday. Well, that that lasted weeks. Yeah, it's striking because we saw Toronto be able to divert them. We saw Quebec be able to divert them. This We're recording this on March 9th, and a couple of days ago, there was an attempted truck convoy to go through Washington, D.C., and they never got close. It seems very striking, and the question that we were asking ourselves in Ottawa was, how much is this incompetence, and how much of this is nefarious, I guess, that one of the members of the 
police board was determined to be hanging out with the, the convoy people. And given the, the contrast you draw in your, your piece about how quickly police authorities in Canada respond to Indigenous protests or protests by other, other historically marginalized people in Canada, it's striking that, you know, this went on for three weeks without much confrontation, whereas those other kinds of protests usually have a much forceful response right at the outset. In fact, I wasn't a, just during the storms that hit British Columbia, that at that same time, there were RCMP that were arresting Indigenous protesters. And you think, well, maybe you should be focused on that whole storm thing. So given what you've looked at at the time and since then, is it incompetence? Is it something nefarious? Is it both? Do you have a sense of what happened in Ottawa? I think it's all of the above. On the one hand, there was a gross miscalculation of the degree of organization of this movement and their capabilities. And, and that led to a series of blunders vis-a-vis -vis how to uh, respond effectively to the, the occupation or what would later become an occupation. But on the other hand, you had internal decadence, internal wranglings that also played into the hands of the, the movement. We now know that some serving officers were involved in organizing this movement. A number of um, individuals, some of them serving in the Canadian Armed Forces, others recently retired. In one uh, particularly spectacular case, somebody who was once in the security detail, uh, on the security detail of the Prime Minister, was also said to have been one of the key leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you have such degree of expertise made available to um, quote-unquote dissidents, they, they had that level of technical competence that law enforcement simply could not uh, envisage. Now, and so that played into their hands. And when you also had the, the intricacies uh, of the Ottawa Police Service, they had brought in uh, Peter Slowly to help with uh, reforms. And clearly there was a degree of, uh, of opposition to his leadership in the Ottawa Police Service. And, and so the, the, that uh, intransigence that he had met, um, that lack of uh, cooperation down um, the hierarchy of, of the Ottawa Police Service also played uh, a role. And you get a, the sense that there were certain elements within the Ottawa Police Service that wanted slowly to fail. And fortunately, he played into their hands. And, and therefore, there, there had been a need for a degree of decisiveness on his part. That did not happen. And, and sadly, he, he's, he's position became uh, untenable. So on the one hand, the issues within Ottawa police, but also broader societal divisions around the infiltration of the Canadian Armed Forces mm -hmm. uh, and, and various um, police services across Canada by, by right-wing sympathizers and sympathies. All of those coalesced to produce what we had. You had individuals who had had some of the most esoteric training in law enforcement in Canada, giving their expertise to this quote-unquote freedom convoy. So, mm. so, so the average police service, in fact, did not stand much of a chance, even at their mm. very best, because you look at the, the coordination and the, that they brought to bear, the rotational arrangements, uh, supplies that they provided, and bringing children to the protests, and the, the way that they filed those trucks 
and strategically blocked the streets. So these were not your average protesters. And, and this is where even if law enforcement and specifically the Ottawa Police Service, even if they had been at the very top of their game, mm-hmm. they would still have had issues policing these individuals the moment they made the strategic blunder to allow those trucks into mm-hmm. downtown Ottawa. That was the original scene. Mm-hmm. Those guys should never have gotten to downtown Ottawa. Mm -hmm. The moment they allowed those trucks in, they had lost the battle right Mm -hmm. there. And therefore, the next step would be, well, negotiations or find a way to tow those trucks. But, you know, I guess speak to the the broad sympathies and the the kind of organic support or even fear around the convoy. We we know Mm -hmm. that there were tow truck companies that refused to participate in towing away those trucks because they were fearful that Mm -hmm. there might be reprisals against them. So these were big business people who should have seen a business opportunity in towing those trucks, but were concerned for their livelihood and their equipment. So Mm -hmm. that's the degree of, first of all, organization we're talking about, but second of all, the kind of worries that people had. If they had moved against these individuals, what might be the repercussions? And therefore, we had, at least for the first time, to my knowledge, and I've I've been, I'm I'm a relatively new Canadian citizen, but I've I've been in, in Canada for nearly uh, 17 years. It's the first time I've heard that the prime minister has had to be relocated for security purposes. Now, and I don't think security agencies do that for fun. And we we may not know until perhaps years down the road the kind of security report that would have necessitated relocating the prime minister uh, and his family. So I hope that we do learn from this episode, but I think that at the minimum, it calls for deep uh, introspection around recruitment into police services mm-hmm. and the armed forces. I believe the the leaks from within and borrowing of expertise that, that happened played a major role in the efficacy uh, of the Freedom Convoy. So it's sometimes hard to draw lessons from this because a lot of things are going on at the same time. For instance, we saw the most effective response happen right after A. Lolly resigned. But at the same time, you also had the feds get involved. And uh, I can't help but think the feds were able to get involved because Trudeau didn't have to worry about his right flank. You know, Conservative Party in power in Ottawa might not have been able to do the same thing. But when you look at this, what are the lessons we can draw for how do we do better? You mentioned, you know, recruitment in the, the police, in the RCMP, in the military. What else should we be thinking about to avoid or these situations in the future, or at least manage them better? Right. So, I mean, so first of all, besides um, recruitment into the armed forces and, and law enforcement, which I think is a, a crucial variable that, that does need to be addressed. It is a fact that law enforcement services and organizations tend to attract the more conservative to right-wing individuals. They're not always all uh, neo-Nazis or skinheads and so forth. That's, that's a slightly different matter, but but law enforcement services tend to attract conservative individuals. Now, conservatism does not have to be uh, right-wing extremism. That that doesn't necessarily mean uh, a path to um, right-wing extremism. And so proper screening has to be done. I know that uh, the Edmonton Police Service, for example, uh, is currently looking at two cases, two officers involved in the convoy. They, they addressed the, the convoy in Coots, Alberta. And in fact, one of the officers made a video, uh, a tearful video, in which he was uh, defending the actions of the, the convoy protesters while in full uh, uh, uniform. So, yeah. so that... 
in essence, so that we can tackle that ideological symmetry uh, between those kinds of protesters and those who are in law enforcement, when we cannot distinguish between uh, those who are supposed to uphold uh, the law and those who are carrying out those kinds of protests, it makes law enforcement uh, more difficult. So that's that's number one. And second, there's a need to put country first, and, and this goes to our elected leaders. The Freedom Convoy issue ran straight into political theater in, in Canada. Rather than seeing this as a national security problem, uh, there were those who were seeing this as, as political opportunity. And in particular, the federal conservatives are guilty of this, from Erwin O'Toole, who met with with some of the convoy uh, protesters to his interim successor, uh, Bagan, who uh, we now know from a CTV report, advised uh, her party to make this a problem, a political problem for the prime minister. So everyone seemed invested in what they could benefit from this situation rather than uh, seeing this as uh, the threat that it was. It, that issue ceased to be a basic uh, law enforcement issue within about a week of occurring, certainly the moment they took over downtown uh, Ottawa. And, and, you know, the moment MPs were advised by the sergeant at arms to, to relocate from their usual spaces of, of residence. So um, so I think that the, there's a need to not look at such situations, especially such a widespread breakdown of law and order as mere political opportunity. We've, we've got to think beyond the next election. We've got to think beyond uh, the vote base or, or how this might play in terms of grassroots politics. And of course, there's, there's, there's a need to finesse laws with respect to fundraising, for instance. Now, we now know that but for um, the Emergencies Act that, that was invoked, there was no way, in fact, to manage the whole issue of, of fundraising on online platforms. Existing laws at the time did not fully capture that. And so the invocation of the Emergencies Act was what enabled the government to actively go after those um, who, who were at the very forefront of this movement. And so it does mean a need to uh, fine-tune certain laws, some of them already existing, but just need a, a few updates. The law has to be a living, breathing organism that has to be in tune with the changing times. But overall, I, I think that this is a wake-up call in terms of recognizing the divisions that have occurred, sadly, within the last year or two mm -hmm. as a result of vaccination and vaccination mandates and so on and so forth. There were some who participated in the protests because they had lost their jobs due mm -hmm. to vaccination mandates. So a, mis a sort of a miscellaneous collection of individuals who, whose livelihood had, had been lost due to vaccination mandates. So, so you had some of those grievances in place. So I believe that elected leaders at all levels uh, can do a lot in terms of appealing to our better angels around why those mandates were put in place. And there's, the reason we've not had the kinds of uh, catastrophic results that some other countries have had is precisely because most of us did the right thing, getting vaccinated and following the rules and regulations around masking and, and, and so forth. So, uh, and so it is, it, is, it is sad that those same uh, uh, issues would end up dividing us. But, but I don't think hope is lost on that. I think that mm -hmm. uh, if there's effort from uh, a municipal level up to the federal level, uh, we can begin to appeal to our fellow citizens 
uh, to not allow this issue to be a wedge that divides us. Rather, we, we are nearing the very end of the pandemic. Uh, Canadians have sacrificed enormously to get to where we are right now. And I don't see any reason why this should continue to be a, a source um, of, of division. Well, I, I hope you're right about that. I wonder about the incentives that politicians face. And it seems to me that the Conservative Party is, is going to pander to the far right as opposed to the middle. They'll take them out of power, potentially, but it's it, they'll, they'll be feeding the fire. I think what we see from Jason Kenney and Doug Ford has not given any reassurance that there's many lessons learned about this besides trying not to lose the far right of their party. Well, I'm not so optimistic. I, I guess one of the last things I want to ask you about is to get to the thing that we started with, which is this notion of who's responsible for policing, because this notion that we don't want to politicize policing. I'm a civil mill person. I study civil military relations. And one of the classic lines of all the military stuff is war is politics by other means. And policing is politics by other means, right? That every every choice a police officer makes, every choice a police department makes is political because they are having to decide to figure out which laws to enforce against whom and, and how seriously and how to you know, array the risk, how to array the risk calculations and all the rest of it. And the events of the past couple of months have reminded us that police have a lot of discretion. And the question is, how do we limit their discretion so that they, that they, they that, that their choices are, are not as problematic? Or how do we incentivize them so that way they use their discretion well? And I, I, I'm just at a loss watching this where, where Kane politicians say, well, we can't do anything. It's, you know, we don't want to politicize this. It's like, it's already political. So do your job and make sure the police are actually serving the public, not themselves. Right. I mean, you, you, you said it quite, quite articulately. Policing involves significant levels of discussion. And, and even prior to the very idea of street level policing, you go back to what gets passed as law, what gets criminalized, and, and at what point in time and against whom, and, and, and the behavioral practices that are criminalized. And there's a reason why uh, over time certain acts, for instance, may in fact get decriminalized. I'm thinking here about pot and the the decriminalization of pot and the growing movement around decriminalization of small quantities of uh, hard drugs. So so clearly these these are, in the end, relatively political issues. Now, the police are at the very epicenter of this ideational battles uh, in in society. Now, the question then is how well they are able to manage those disparate demands, those contesting priorities and feuding ideologies within which they have been uh, embedded. Now, with respect to the the convoy, I think at the minimum, uh, we got a glimpse of the underbelly of the criminal justice system, such that it was very clear, at least to a lot of uh, indigenous groups and and, um, environmental justice uh, advocacies, that this had been uh, an indigenous people's movement or some environmental justice uh, uh, movement that had blocked such critical infrastructure and they would have been quickly dealt with and perhaps quite severely. Uh, but it all, it's, all, it's also reminiscent of what, what's been happening in the States, the prosecution of individuals who participated in the January 6th um, invasion of the U.S. Capitol. One U.S. judge was so enraged at the very minor charges being brought against the culprits that she asked the U.S. Department of Justice officials if they thought that these individuals were mere trespassers rather than a mob that had descended on the Capitol in an incident in which 
people actually died, mm -hmm. uh, including uh, our police officers. So again, discussion is the name of the game, but what kind of discussionary practices are we making? And do these practices present the service in good light? Do these practices uh, reflect the values and the norms of the criminal justice system? And do these practices serve the public good? Now, in, in this particular case, with respect to the Freedom Convoy, I, I believe I'm very strongly to um, that a lot of the police services, beginning with the Ottawa Police uh, Service, did not cover themselves in glory in that regard. They exposed themselves to public ridicule as people could not reconcile their previous actions against other categories mm -hmm. of justice with the way that they had handled uh, this particular episode. And that is exactly what you want to avoid as a police service, because such incidents portray police leadership either as incompetent or out of touch, uh, or in, in, in some cases that they're just not interested in enforcing the law. I know that this was a big issue here in Edmonton when counter-protesters were in fact quickly dispersed while the Freedom Convoy people kept constituting a, a massive degree of discomfort for downtown residents in, in Edmonton. And again, another very telling episode. So all we can say on that, at least from my perspective, is the need for law enforcement to be aware that the public is not oblivious of these discrepancies. And the public is watching and they make their own tasks more difficult when people can point to relatively concrete evidence of disproportional uh, use of police and resources and appurtenances of law enforcement against one group rather than the other. They, none of that augurs well for the rule of law. And therefore, what we want are police services, police officers who are neutral arbiters, who are neither left-wing nor right-wing, but are, are somewhere in the middle of the political spectrum trying to do their best to ensure the rule of law and an obedience to the law without fear of favor. Now, that can only happen when we do not hire ideologues, people who have already decided what part of the political spectrum they already fit in, and then that shapes how they respond to uh, protests uh, on the streets. So, so I believe it's, it is doable. I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, but I, I think that it, it, it has to start from a very clinical and conscientious social sorting process in the recruitment of, of individuals into law enforcement and the armed forces. And, I mean, think of the uh, armed forces folks who are currently under investigation for participating in the convoy. What if, following the Emergencies Act, soldiers had been deployed? What would those soldiers have done? Would they have enforced the law? Or would they have also just, you know, stood idly by as the, the protests continued. So in, in the end, it's it's important um, for servicemen and women to recognize the sacred duty that they have. Be neither left-wing nor right-wing. That is not your job. Your job is to be somewhere as a neutral arbiter enforcing the law to the best of your ability. Well, that's, I think, it's a great place to finish. I think there's a lot more we need to do, a lot more that we need to study. I'm glad there are people out there like you who are studying criminology and studying the police and all of this. We, I think we've spent too far along taking this stuff for granted out here in the public. And I'm sure that, you know, your career on this has not been a recent phenomenon. I've been working on this for quite some time. So thanks for, for being on Bad Rhythm today. 
and good luck in your future studies. Hopefully you have less incidents like this to study, but I'm afraid you'll probably have more data down the road. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve, for having me. For this week's R&R segment, I've got, again, three things. D-Day Girls by Sarah Rose. It's a book about a bunch of women the British trained to drop into France, occupied France during World War II to uh, facilitate the resistance and to sabotage the German war effort. Uh, I think it's a really interesting book to see a dimension of the war that I don't think has been well covered. And so I recommend that. The second is The Stranger. It's a TV series, a limited TV series of, I believe it's on Amazon. Uh, it's a Harlan Cobden uh, series. And it's basically about uh, a guy who finds out something about his wife because there's somebody else in town who is blackmailing a lot of people and it likes to break secrets, feels their role in life is to reveal people's secrets. So it leads to all kinds of trouble for him and people he knows and it was very engaging. Finally, and something I thought I'd mentioned earlier, but I guess it got lost in the holidays. No Way Home, the latest Spider-Man movie. It is now available on demand. I watched it in a theater, one of the very few movies I've seen in the past two years in the theaters. And it seemed again, because my wife hadn't seen it before, really reminded me of, of how much heart and joy and fun that movie had. It just did everything great. It really didn't just wrap up the trilogy of the Tom Holland movies, but it wrapped up three series of movies. I was going to say three trilogies, but they never made a third Amazing Spider-Man movie with Andrew Garfield. It, it really wraps up all of those movies in a beautiful way. It's a lot of fun. It's just terrific Spidey stuff. I went into it with a lot of trepidation because I, did, I, I kind of worried about where the last movie left Spider-Man and Peter Parker. And I was worried about how the involvement of Doctor Strange would work out, but it was just a fun movie. They just did, hit all the marks really well. All the all the villains were who they brought back were terrific. All the other people they brought back, which I'm not going to talk about because I don't want to spoil anything, were phenomenal. So No Way Home, I recommend it highly. It's worth the $25 if you get, get it online through one of the outlets. Or you can keep up on waiting for it when it eventually is available on a streaming service for free. But it was terrific. And it's still in the theaters, by the way. Anyhow, that's what we got. Have a great couple of weeks. And we're going to have a guest co-host next time because Stephanie is going to be out and about. So Anessa Kimball will be uh, co-hosting with me in a couple of weeks. See you then. Take care.